This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. The big Shabbat Shalom. I want to explain to you, you guys, you may or may not realize how much you are actually in alignment with what is going on in Israel. Do you guys realize on that little card that you have that shows your prayer readings every day, this weekend, you guys are reading the very same Bible verses that are being read in every synagogue around the world. You are in exact alignment. And what you're reading about is, uh, if you've been reading your lessons, is about the different plagues in Exodus. And I believe this, this the last couple of days, uh, maybe even today specifically, if you read your portion, you read about the plague of locusts. Well, I don't know if you know, but if you look, today, today is Rosh Chodesh, which means it's the first day of a new month, the month of Shabbat. This is the first of Shabbat today, and today is the very day the plague of locusts took place. And you are reading about the plague of locusts. You're lined up with the nation of Israel, and guess what? There's more. Let's light his uh, little fire here. What they would do on every Shabbat, as well as every new moon, they would light fires, and that's how they would communicate. And the fires, from hilltop to hilltop to hilltop, they would let it know till it got all the way over to Babylon. And everyone would know that it's the new moon, it's the new month, or it's the Shabbat. And I want to tell you something that happened today that is absolutely incredible. Look at this verse, Deuteronomy 1.3. It says, it happened in the 40th year, this is of their wilderness wandering, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Today is the very day, the first day of the 11th month that this happened. That's today. This is the anniversary of Moses' last message before he dies. That's today. And this is why it's so important to connect with the biblical calendar so that when things happen, you know, wow, this is what God is talking about. As a matter of fact, I believe it's in Ezekiel 24, verse 1 and 2, God is speaking to Ezekiel and he says, write down the name of this day. Don't you ever forget it, that this is the day that Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem. There are days that God does not want us to forget. How many of you want someone to forget your anniversary or your birthday? Okay, well, God gave us a calendar and he wants us to understand that there's reasons because we need to bring things back to remembrance. And a lot of that has to do with the letter Zion. And so I'm going to talk about that at the very end. But today I have an hour, so I'm going to talk real fast. You guys, oh, no. Let me, uh, I want to show you a few things about the Gospels that I, I did have a chance to yesterday. And then I'm going to go into what every Jew is reading today. We're going to go over what's on your card. We're going to kind of go through the Torah portion. But I want to start with this. Uh, if you remember yesterday, I was talking about the letter Vav and how the letter Vav is my favorite letter. Do you remember that? And the Vav is the sixth letter. And it means to connect. Well, I want you to know something. Here's where you get robbed in your English Bibles. Do you know there are words that are misspelled in Hebrew intentionally by God to bring out meaning? 
but they're not misspelled in English. D-O-T, basically, if you're thinking in English, toldot. That is how you spell generations. This is the completed form because when God created the heavens and the earth, everything was perfect. It's complete. But do you know in Genesis 5.1, when it says this is the book of the generations of Adam, what's happened? The letter Vav is missing. There's a Vav that's missing. It's misspelled. Well, do you remember Vav is a nail? It connects heaven and earth. And because Adam sinned, the connection has been broken. It's telling us there's been a break in the connection between heaven and earth. The signal isn't as good as it was before. The Wi-Fi connection is a problem. There's something wrong. Now the letter Vav, being man, was created on the sixth day, also represents man. So now we see a man is missing and we need a man to come and reconcile the connection back between heaven and earth. Now, do you know this word is misspelled without that vav another 90 times in the Torah? It is never spelled correctly again. The next time it is connected again is in the book of Ruth when it's talking about, now these are the generations of Peretz, okay? And notice the vav is back. Why is it spelled correctly there? Well, guess what? What is happening, let's see. And Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David. King David was the missing man because the seed of Messiah is coming through David. It's been narrowed down. David is now, Yeshua actually is the missing man, but he comes from the seed of David. It's been narrowed down between Isaac and Ishmael, between Jacob and Esau, between all the sons, and it comes down to now David. He is the king. This is why, look at this, in Matthew, see now we're going to bring in the Gospels. In the book of Matthew, when it says, the book of the generations of Yeshua HaMashiach, the son of who? David, it doesn't say Adam, it doesn't say Abraham, it's the son of David. This is why in Matthew 1, it goes on to say, so all the generations from Abraham to who? David, or 14 generations, from David to the exile, 14 generations, from the carrying away of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Does anyone know why the number 14 here is so significant? I will show you why. David's name in Hebrew, the Dalit is a numerical value of four. The Vav is six. The Dalit is four. David is a numerical value of 14. So what, God, what it is saying then is this. Let's go back. It's, it's saying when it says 14, 14, 14, it wants you to know David, 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 the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. That's what that is telling us. It's like the fireworks are going off in the book of Matthew when he says 14, 14, 14. He's trying to tell you he's the son of David. This is the Messiah that's, who's come. He's the missing man, Yeshua, through King David. So that's one way of looking at it. Now let's look at, go to this. In Proverbs 30, verse 4 through 6. The reason why I had to add this is because it was brought up in the last couple of services over the last few days. It's, remember, you guys have been talking, the speaker has been talking about the dove falling, this is my beloved son. Remember they were talking, the speakers were talking about my beloved son? In Proverbs 30, it says, who has ascended up into heaven or descended? That's a question. 
Well, there's only one, and that's Yeshua. He's the only one. I mean, we know because we have hindsight. But then it goes on to say, who gathered the wind in his fist? Who bound the earth or the waters in his garment? Who established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And then look at this. What is his son's name? That is so significant. What is his name? Who is the one that did all that? And then it says, and what is his son's name? This is a pop quiz that the Bible is asking us. And it says, if you can tell, then it says, every word of God is pure. He's a shield to them that put their trust in him. And don't you be adding to his words, lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. Now, how many of you, either in the newspaper or on your own, have these little word search books where they have all these letters in this cube and, and you try to find the words within the box? Okay, typically what they do when they build those, they just put the words they want in there and then they add all these letters around it. And typically when you find them, uh, there's really no connection. But I want to show you something. If you take Proverbs 30, verse 4 through 6, what we just read, here's where verse 4 begins, and you go this way. Right here is the phrase, and what is his son's name? The vav is end. Remember I told you end? Ma is what? Shem is name. Ben is son. So right here is the phrase, and what is his son's name? Okay. Down here, coming along here, is the phrase, don't you be adding to his words, lest you be found a liar. So that is right here. And then this orange letter is where verse 6 ends. You put these, this exact phrase in Hebrew in this grid. Watch what you're going to find. First off, have you ever heard of the word Hashem? Okay, most of you haven't. The Jews do not want to say God's name. They don't want to say the yud heh vav heh or Yahweh. So what they say is Hashem. Hashem means the name. Shem is name, ha is the. Here is how you say Hashem. The H sound, the shin, the mem. Hashem. Say Hashem. Okay, do you see Hashem? The hey shin, mem. Everyone see that? In that grid where it says, and what is his son's name, right? First it says, what is his name? And then it says, what is his son's name? Well, where it says, what is his name? In this phrase about what is his son's name, you see Hashem also. Do you see Hashem? That is what is his name. Now, the next question is this, what is his son's name? Well, right here, you have Yeshua, which is Jesus' name in Hebrew. And, Yeshua, and it forms a cross. So we have his name is Hashem. And you have, what is his son's name? You have Yeshua tied right into, don't be adding to his words. This is the Y-S-H, you know, U-A, Yeshua. So I think it's incredible that here you have this test this inquiry, what is his name and what is his son's name? And we can find by looking at it, his name is Hashem, his son's name is Yeshua. Now let's go back and look at this. In Matthew 17, 5, while he yet spoke, it says, A bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the clouds which said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we see it says in Yeshua, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, what happens? The heavens were opened unto him, and what did he see? He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and lighting upon him. And now a voice from heaven is saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So this verse in Proverbs 30 is what these verses are telling you to go back to. When, when the Jews would hear, this is my beloved son, they're trying to say, okay, this is the answer to Proverbs 30. But now look at this. The Spirit of God is descending like a dove upon Yeshua. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which is the resh vav and the chet. This is the word ruach. Say ruach. In English, we say Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, they say Ruach HaKodesh, Spirit the Holy. Ruach HaKodesh. But the Hebrew word is Spirit, is Ruach, and the Spirit descended upon Yeshua. And in Proverbs 30, the word Ruach is right above the word Yeshua. The Spirit of God is descending upon him. Now, only God can do things like that. Okay, so now I want to go to the Torah portion today is all about the exodus, the plagues, and all of this. How many of you have heard the term Passover before? Who has not heard the word Passover? Everyone knows the word Passover. Okay, in uh, Exodus 12, verse 26 to 27, it says, it'll happen when your children ask you, what do you mean by this service? You know, they do what's called a Passover Seder every year. And it says, you're to say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses and all the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Well, the thing that I want to point out at every Passover Seder, Yeshua, how many know the Last Supper was really a Passover Seder? That's what it was. And at every Passover Seder, there were actually four cups. Most Christians just think of the, the one cup when Yeshua lifted the cup, okay? And he said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood or the New Covenant, right? There were actually four cups. And it's based on this verse in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, where God says, therefore, tell the children of Israel, number one, that I am the Lord. And then he's going to mention four things that he's going to accomplish. And each one of the four cups of the Passover Seder are to remember these four things. The first one is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's number one. Number two, I will rid you of their bondage. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Number four, I will take, oops, let's go back. I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God. So Passover is, and redemption is actually a four-step process. And that's what this tells us. And that's why there are four cups. And I'm going to explain these four cups to you or these four stages of your redemption. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. Sanctification is another word for holiness or to be set apart. Of all the world, God chose Israel and he says, I pick you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you apart. And he says, I'm going to bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, this is the first stage of our redemption, but it's not the ultimate phase. Just because He's released our burdens with the first cup. There's a big problem. You're still chained. 
He may have taken the load off of your shoulders, but you're still chained and you're still in Egypt. So the next thing that God wants to do in the process is the second cup, which is, I want to rescue you from their bondage. So the first thing God wants to do is move the heavy burden of sin off of your shoulders. But how many of you know when he often does that, he leaves our guilt, we still feel like we're still chained and we're still in Egypt. That's why our redemption is not complete yet. Okay, he's not only lifted off the yoke, but with a cup of deliverance, he wants to break the chains. Okay, so you can literally be rescued. Uh, as you know, you cannot serve two masters. As long as they were in Egypt, they were still serving another master. Okay, so God wanted to take their burdens off, but he also wanted to deliver us, which is why in Colossians 1.13, it says he delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So number one, he wants to get rid of your burdens, but number two, he wants to rescue from those habits. How many of you know the habits can be a big bondage? And so this is the problem with a lot of believers. They have their burdens lifted, but they've never been released from the bad habits. The chains haven't been broken. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, it says, Purge out the old yeast that you may be a new lump, even as you are matzah. You're to be unleavened. It says, For indeed, Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed in our place. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So again, in the New Testament, it's telling us to keep the feast of Passover. So now we see their loads have been removed. Their ankle chains have been broken, okay? There's still one more problem. They're still in Egypt, okay? So he says, I'm going to rescue you from their bondage, and he's rescued us from the bondage. The chains are now broken, but the big problem is you're still in Egypt. Okay, so the, second, the first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. Okay, let's go back. That's the second cup. First cup, he chose you. He released your burdens. The second cup, he's broken your chains so you can be delivered. But here's the problem. You're still in Egypt. Okay, and the problem, someone has to pay for your redemption. Someone has to pay the redemption price. If someone goes to a pawn shop and they, they put something in the pawn shop, if they want it back, they got to pay the price to get it back. So the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And this is where God says, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now, this, there's something incredible about being redeemed with an outstretched arm. Here, let me go back, make sure I'm at the right place. Okay. I want you to realize in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, this third cup of redemption where God redeems us, he's going to redeem us with an outstretched arm. But I want you to think about this. Look at Jeremiah 32, 17. God says, well, Jeremiah is speaking and he says, Ah, Lord God, you are the ones who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your what? Outstretched arm. And there's nothing too hard for you. I want you to think about this. What did it cost God to create the world? Did it cost him anything or did he just speak it? Let there be light and there was light. Let there be the earth, there's earth. What, how much did it cost God to create for creation? It didn't cost him anything. 
But it took great power in his outstretched arm to do it. It took great power in an outstretched arm, it says. But there was no cost for the creation. Now, when we stop and look at the value, what this world is worth, look how many billions, trillions, gazillions of dollars, if you were to add up the entire world, all the land, all the houses, all the buildings, all the iron ore, the gold, the silver, the diamonds, everything that we value, look how valuable almost an infinite price of all the wealth that's in this world, and yet there was no cost to create it in God. There was no cost. Look at the value, how much it's worth, and yet it cost God nothing. God could wipe out this earth today and not have a loss because he could recreate all these natural resources just by saying, come back. But think about this. Listen to this. In Psalm 49, 7 and 8, it says, No one by any means can redeem their brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases forever. Do you realize what that means? That means no one can redeem you because you are worth too much money. You, as an individual, are worth more than all the gold, all the silver, all the platinum, everything in the world. You are invaluable. Your redemption cost God everything. It cost him his life. It cost Yeshua his life. So you are worth more than all the resources of the world. Too often, we love things and use people instead of loving people and using things. And we end up putting too much value on the things of this world that are worth nothing. You are worth so much more value than all the gold and silver in the world to God. Creation cost him nothing, but your redemption cost him everything. And it took the same amount of power to create the universe. That's how much power it took to redeem you. Plus, a price had to be paid. As a matter of fact... This is the word, uh, remember, this is the, what letter is this? Aleph, right? And it's, it's the picture of an ox, uh, and it represents God. This is the Lamed, the shepherd's staff. And so God, this is El, Elohim, this is El. That means God is the first authority. He's a strong authority. So this is the name for God. Now I want you to notice something. When you add the letter Gimel, the G sound, you now get the word Goel, G, you know, the, the vowel is silent, and the L, Goel. Do you know what this word is? This is the Hebrew word for redemption. And you'll notice if you have your sheet of paper, the Gimel, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, the third letter, the Gimel means to be lifted up. So redemption comes when God is lifted up. That's redemption. When God is lifted up, that's where we're going to find redemption. Okay, so now here's the next thing. Your burdens have been taken off. That's the first cup. Your chains have been broken. That's the second cup. The third cup is the cup of redemption where the price has been paid. Okay, so now you can leave. But there's still one more problem. God could have just 
left you in Egypt, or he could have taken you across into the wilderness, and God could have dumped you off or dumped Israel off in the wilderness and says, fine, see you later. I'm done. You're on your own. How many of you, if, if you have a flat tire and someone comes to fix your tire, that doesn't mean they want to marry you. God could have, he broke their chains. Okay, he took their load off, broke their chains, paid their price, got them out of Egypt and put them in the wilderness. He could have just left them there and said, okay, great, you're on your own. But that's not what happened. Now comes the fourth cup which is known as the cup of acceptance, where he says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. How many of you are glad that God has accepted you as his child? I mean, my goodness, he could have just dumped them off in the wilderness, but no. This is why there are four cups in every Passover Seder, because God wants you to know, as it says in Ephesians, you've been accepted in the Beloved. Now, I want to show you this. I don't know if you've recognized this before. Let's go to the Gospels. In Luke twenty-two seventeen, 17, it says, he took cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. That was the first cup. Now, look over here. This is verse 20. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. That is the third cup. That's the cup of redemption. It's showing you there was more than one cup at the Passover Seder. It just mentions the first one and the third one. Now, the third one, the cup of redemption at every Passover Seder is after the meal. They have the cup of sanctification, setting that day apart, setting them apart. Then they, they go over the exodus. They have the cup of deliverance. And then they have the meal. After the meal is when comes the cup of redemption. Judas left after the meal and was not there for the cup of redemption. He was not there for that cup. Now, one of the things I want to point out, and this is what they do at every Passover Seder, and many Christians aren't aware of this, but every single one of the plagues was against one of the gods of Egypt. It says in Exodus 12, 12, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And this is why God would not let Pharaoh give up and quit after the third plague. And he would strengthen his heart saying, what do you mean? I got seven more plagues to go. So let's take a look. Okay, the first plague was the Nile turning into blood, which symbolized the death of this God. The Nile God was called Happy, and he wasn't too happy after this. But what happens? The, the very fact that they turned the Nile into blood showed the death of this God, the God of the Nile. Then we have the frog goddess, Hecate. Uh, and it's because the Egyptians saw that there were many frogs all appearing from the Nile. They associated the frog with the fertility and with resurrection. And so what happens? God says, you want frogs? I'll give you frogs. And they had frogs, so it was coming out of their ears. Uh, the next uh, god was Geb. Geb was the god of the earth. They believed that the earthquakes were believed to be their god laughing. But what did he do to that god? The dust, he turned it into lice. Then what happens? You have Shu or Su. Su was the god of the dry air, wind, atmosphere. Uh, that was the god who would hold the sky off of the earth, allowing life to flourish in Egypt with his breath of life. So what does God do? He brings the plague of insects and says, try to stop this. 
Then you have Apis. Apis is uh, the bull cult. The bull was proclaimed to be God incarnate. And so what did God do? He has the death of all the livestock, all the cattle, and executing that God. Next we have Heka. Heka was the god of magic and medicine. To the ancient Egyptians, they were one and the same. And that god was uh, symbolized by a man carrying a magic staff and a knife with the tools of a healer. So what does God do? He says, all right, heal this. You know, he, he shows them that that god is worthless because that god cannot heal all the boils. Then you have this next god. This next god was a real nut. That was its name, nut. And this god was the god of the firmament who would protect man from the heavens. So what does God do? He sends hailstones and says, try to stop this. As a matter of fact, these hailstones were really different in that uh, there may be a little play button. Yeah, hit that. They were, it was uh, hail mixed with fire. It was fire and ice. Uh, which is quite fascinating that you could have uh, both fire and ice at the same time. So then what happens? Men. The god Men uh, was the, uh, the god of the harvest. The Egyptian harvest festival in Egypt, uh, the celebration of the springtime harvest festival was dedicated to men who was their god of vegetation so, and fertility. So what does God do? He brings a plague of locusts. Okay, to show that their God, men, uh, was not stronger than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, next we come to Ra, the Egyptian sun god who brought life. Well, what did God do to attack that God and show them that their God, Ra, was not in charge? He turns right around and he has this plague of darkness. So you can see how each one of these plagues was against one of the gods of Egypt. But there's still one more plague, the death of the firstborn. Amun-Ra was believed to have been the creator of man. And notice they use a lamb or a ram. And that was supposed to be the, the god that beget Pharaoh. And so the plague now is the death of the firstborn of man. Because they worshipped the lamb or the ram. And so here we have the death now of the firstborn. But there's something that's crazy that I want to mention to you guys. Here we have all these different plagues. But the thing that you need to remember to the Egyptians, the killing of a lamb was a desecration of their religion because they worshiped the lamb. The Passover sacrifice was a direct challenge to their gods. Think about this. God says, okay, the Egyptians worship the lamb god. Now, how many of you love to smell the smell of a barbecue in the summer? Your neighbors are barbecuing. You can smell it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that is so good. All right? So God tells the Israelis, I want you to go grab each one of you, one of their gods, this lamb, and I want you to barbecue it whole outside that they can smell you killing their god. Let the smell just permeate Egypt. Everybody knows I'm killing your god. And God commanded them that they couldn't cut it up into little pieces and pass it off as something else. They had to offer it up whole where everyone knows that all these Egyptians, when they would smell this barbecue of their God. And then God said, not only that, I want you to take the blood and put it on the outside of your doorpost. So if they come, they know you're the one who slew their God. It was at their house. Talk about politically incorrect. The other thing, every spring... 
in Egypt and Israel. The constellation Aries is what is seen in the sky, their lamb god. And they believed that at the full moon, that's supposed to be the moon, let's make it a little bit bigger, the Jewish festivals are based on the moon. In the middle of Nisan, when the moon is at its fullest, that's when they believed their lamb God was at the apex of his strength. And so God chose Passover to be at the full moon in the constellation Aries to show them they don't have the true lamb of God. God has the true lamb of God. And so it's at that point that he slew the Passover lamb. Now the God of Israel, let's go back here a second. He judged the gods of Egypt by destroying them. And now what? Israel was on the move. Now how many of you believe after the last few days that in Zimbabwe, you as a people are to be on the move? Here's Egypt, okay? Uh, and here's the Israelis. And they're about to leave Egypt. They're gonna enter a new chapter in life. They're on the move. At the Red Sea, Egypt is coming, Pharaoh and all of his chariots, and they're crying out what to do. And, and Moses is crying out to God because they're trapped by the Red Sea on one side and the Pharaoh coming with all of his horses. And he cries out to God and God says, Moses, go forwards. Go forward. And in faith, they had to go forward. But here's the thing. And this is what to me is so absolutely incredible. Write this down because I want you to go back to this later. You've got to have this verse. Here's the thing. Did it, is, maybe we've been talking about getting the spoils. Getting the spoils. Did not Israel spoil the Egyptians? They got the spoils. They got the hard work of their labor over several hundred years that they had coming to them. And they took those spoils with them. And it is great to take the spoils with you. But there was a big problem. Look at Exodus 20 verse 1. God, I mean Ezekiel. Ezekiel 20 verse 1. God had destroyed all the gods of Egypt, right? And now he tells them to spoil the Egyptians and to go into the promised land. But look at Ezekiel 20. And we're going to read verse 1. Uh, for a little ways. It says it happened. Ezekiel's having this vision it says. In the seventh year. In the fifth month. The tenth day of the month. That certain of the elders of Israel. Came to inquire of the Lord. And sat before me. Now I want to stop there for a minute. When you guys start reading. Dates in your Bible. You need to think. Okay. God wouldn't have put that date in there. If it wasn't important. What do you know, uh, first off, is the seventh year, does that sound familiar? Is number seven important? This is a Shemitah year. It's the seventh year of the Shemitah cycle. And then it says it was the tenth day of the fifth month. What happens on the ninth day of the fifth month, the day before? That's the ninth of Ab when the temple was destroyed. And so here, they're in Babylon... They're mourning the destruction of the temple in Israel on the ninth of Av. They're all held captive. They fasted on that day over there because that's a fast day. They're mourning. And the very next day, the tenth of Av in Babylon, the elders sit around Ezekiel and they're kind of thinking, okay, what are we going to do? We're in captivity. 
And it says here that certain of the elders of Israel came to him. They wanted to inquire of the Lord. And Ezekiel says, they're all sitting down before me. And so he's seeking the Lord. And the word of the Lord, it says, come, came to Ezekiel. And he said this. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and tell them, thus says the Lord God, is it to inquire of me that you've come as I live, says the Lord God? I will not be inquired of you. Can you imagine? Here they're coming to hear the word of the Lord and the Lord says, that you can't come in my presence. I don't want to hear from you. It, then he says, will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Cause them to know the abomination of their fathers. Now look at this and tell them. So here Ezekiel is around, you know, 587 B.C. Moses was 1500 B.C. So when God is speaking to Ezekiel, he's talking about what happened a thousand years ago. And he says, look at this. Thus says the Lord God, in the day when I chose Israel, and I swore to the seed of the house of Jacob, and I made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, in that day I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had even searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. And look what God told Israel. And I said to them, please cast away every man the abominations of his eyes and don't defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me. They would not listen to me. They did not throw away the abomination of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Here God delivered them, slew all the idols of Egypt, and then they decided to bring some of the idols with them into the promised land. I don't know if you ever caught that. When here they're leaving Egypt, they're fleeing for their life, all of them were bringing an Egyptian idol with them. That was not part of the spoils that God wanted them to take. When you take of the spoils, make sure you do not take what is not yours as God does not want you to take. Some things have to be left behind. We're to get the spoils, but we have to discern between what is a spoil and what is an idol that we need to leave back. Do you remember in... Uh, 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul, now's the time to kill the Amalekites. And like Pastor Tom was saying, you've got to kill every single one of them. If you leave one behind, you're asking for trouble in that further down generation. Do you remember Saul? What tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. And he was supposed to kill Agag, and Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And he doesn't do it. And so he's judged and he loses the kingship. Do you know what happened 500 years later? You have the book of Esther. You have Mordecai. You find Mordecai is a direct descendant of Saul. And he's facing Haman who is a direct descendant of Agag. So 500 years later because he did not obey. Now they're facing the entire annihilation of Israel. And Amalek will have no mercy. And it says, Saul, if you remember, he took up the spoils and God says, do not take up these spoils. And he was judged. And so in the book of Esther, when Mordecai and Esther win the battle, twice at the end of the book it says, and they did not touch the spoils. They did not touch the spoils. So there are times when God wants you to get every bit of spoil you can, but you have to not take their idols. Aaron with the golden calf. 
He, he, I mean, they were taking the gold and they made it into this idol. And God didn't tell Moses, okay, just melt that gold down and let's turn around and use it now for the temple. No, they had to dispose of it. Once something has been offered up to an idol, don't use it thinking, okay, let's make it right and make it God. Does that make sense? This goes back to why you can't take the ways of the pagan and turn them into a Christian holiday. Okay. I want to show you something else. Repent. And I talked to Pastor Tom earlier, and he said he's gone over this with you before. The, the Hebrew word for repent is shuv. Teshuva is the, uh, the full word for repentance. Okay. Oh, and I was talking to Neil earlier, Pastor Neil. And a lot of Christians think repentance means to turn around. That's not what it means. Let's say here is the beginning, the restoration. Everything needs to be restored. As a matter of fact, in Acts 3, 17 through 19, it says Yeshua is not coming back till the restoration of all things. Here's the house. This is God's house. And you've sinned. You've left the house and you've gone away. And you're to repent. And so in our mind, we think, okay, repent means to turn around. So I'm going to turn around and now I'm going to go this way. What good does that do? Repent doesn't mean turn around. Repent means to go home. It means to go back to where you came from. That's what repentance is. But there's more than that. The letter shin, as you know, means to consume or destroy. It's like a fire. God's a consuming fire. El Shaddai. Bait means house. So true repentance means to burn the house down so you don't go back to where you were. So here's the home where you left. Now you're at another house, you're in Egypt, and God tells you to repent. It means you need to burn this house down and go back home to where you belong. The problem is we don't always burn the house down. Do you know what we do? We take the sins of our life and we just jail it, and then we go visit it and see how it's doing. That is the problem that we have with our sins. We love our sin. This is the biggest concept I want you to get. Yeshua, how many of you think, say you're saved? Anyone believe they're saved? Anybody here saved? Pastor, no one's raising their hand. My question is, what do you say from? When people say they're saved, what do you say from? Some people say, well, I'm saved from hell. No. Matthew 121, they shall call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. The problem is we don't want to be safe from our sins. We love him too much. We just want to be safe from the consequence. God is saying, if I save you from your sin, you don't have to worry about the consequence of your sin. But we love our sin too much. So when God convicts us, we just go and put it in a corner and think we've, we've repented. But like I said, then we go and visit it and see how it's doing. Okay. In the time I have left now, one of the things that really excited me about Pastor Tom and Pastor Bonnie 
was I was watching some of the YouTubes also of what you guys do and some of the different things, and I saw that you guys were proclaiming the crowned Vav, the Zion, the crowned man, Yeshua, the sword, this year, you know, as the sword. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they get it. And I just, uh, I just wanted to come. And you guys really need to appreciate Pastor Tom, Pastor Bonnie. They're absolutely incredible in their apostolic work and everything that they're doing. But I'm, I'm telling you, they are so ahead of the curve. Or they really are. And what I want to do, and I love that, I couldn't believe it because Pastor Tom was even talking about it in a service, the service this morning, and I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to show this. So I added some PowerPoints at the last moment. <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about the letter Zion for a minute. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, it says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. How many of you want to have the right weapon in your hand? you got to have the right weapon. You don't take a knife to a gunfight. We need to have the right weapons. Well, I want to mention to you something. There's these two words right here in Hebrew. Notice what letter they begin with. Zakar, that means to remember. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 7 and 8, it says, remember. And that word remember begins with the letter Zion, which tells you remembering something is a very good weapon. He says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, he'll show you, your elders, they'll tell you. When the Most High divided the nations of their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds according to the number of the children of Israel. And that word there, remember, is the word zakar, and it means to mark something so it is recognizable. To mark it so it will be remembered. To mention it. Now, Zaman, this over here, is another weapon. It begins with the weapon. So this tells you this is a weapon. When a word begins with the letter Zion in Hebrew, you know this is a weapon. This is a weapon word. <clears throat> and it, that is a word. It means to fix an appointed time. So the appointed times become ver a weapon. That's why acknowledging the feasts are so important because they become a part of the weapons of your warfare. And just as a sword, it divides time. The letter Zayin divides time. For example, again, the Zayin is the seventh letter. You have the seven days to Shabbat. You have a, the seven weeks to the Feast of Pentecost. You have the seventh month when all the fall feasts are. You have the seven Shemitah years. Then you have the seven, seven Shemitah years to the year of Jubilee. And you have the 7,000 years in the plan of God. And so with the number seven comes finality heralding new beginnings, which is Chet, which is the number eight, which means new life. So Chet comes after Zayin, and Chet means a new beginnings, life. And so we see Zayin the weapon is to remember, and remember what? Remember to divide the times, make things holy, separate the holy from that which is common. The problem is, I mean, some people tell me, well, every day is holy. If every day is holy, nothing is holy. 
Holiness means to separate. Now, I want you to look at this. This is Psalms 119. And this is verse 49. And verse 49 starts the Hebrew letter Zion, where every verse begins with the letters, a different word with the letter Zion. And so right here you have zakar, which means to remember. Okay? And so Psalm 119, verse 49 in English reads this. Remember the word to your servant upon which you've caused me to hope. This is what is my comfort and my affliction. It goes on and says, I remembered your judgments of old, and I've comforted myself. And then listen to what David says. Horror has taken a hold of me because of the wicked who are forsaking your Torah. Your statutes, and I'll get a load of this, your statutes have become songs in the house of my pilgrimage, and I've remembered your name in the night, and I've kept your Torah. And this I had because I kept your precepts. Now, as I told you before, there are different Hebrew letters that in the text, you don't see it when they translate into English. There's big letters, there's small letters, there's upside down letters. Uh, there's all kinds of things. Well, right here is the letter Zayin, which is a sword. And this time the Zayin is made gigantic. It's bigger than all the letters, which means this is something that you need. If you know Zion, you better know this verse. You better know this word. And this is Malachi. Uh, here's Malachi 3.16. I'll just go ahead and read that one first. But it says, those that feared the Lord spoke often to one another. And the Lord listened and he heard it. And there was a book of remembrance. Okay? And remembrance, remember, is the crone that was written before him. And those that feared the Lord taught on his name. But the verse where this big Zion is is Malachi 4.4, and here's a, let me show you a picture. Okay, there it is. This is Malachi 4.4 in Hebrew, and here's this giant Zayin, which means this is an important verse. And here's what the important verse is. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. So this is telling us remembering the Torah is a great spiritual weapon to be used in spiritual warfare. Now I want you to notice something else. Here is the word zamar. And here we see the Zayin at the beginning. So that is very important weapon. And here in Leviticus 25.3, it says, Six years you're to sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard. This is the word to prune. So we see a great spiritual weapon is to prune when things need to be pruned. You need to get rid of that sin as Pastor Tom was talking about. You need to cut off those things that are causing damage in your life. That is Zayin. That, you need to prune things in your life. Now, let's go to this next one. This is Zamar. Now, this here, let me go here, is particularly for Pastor Bonnie. Oh. The word Zamar is for you. Do you see this Zayin right here? In Psalms 9-11, it says, to sing praises to the Lord. That is the word to sing. Seeing is a weapon of our warfare. Because Zayin is the first letter of this Hebrew word to sing. But there's something that's very incredible about it. The, the Hebrew word is Strong's 2167. 
And that, that word zamar means to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument, to play upon it, to make music accompanied by the voice, hence to celebrate in song and music, to give praise, plucking an instrument. So this tells you also that singing praises is a powerful weapon. Now, lastly, I'm going to close with this one. Mar, by itself, in Hebrew, how many have ever heard of this place called Mara? Mar means to be bitter. As a matter of fact, if you look at the mem, the mem, if you remember, oh, we'll come over here, the mem is water, correct? And it means chaos. Raish is the person's head. So someone who is bitter is a chaos man. But what happens when you add the letter Zayin to it, that is the weapon to conquer bitterness is to sing. Our weapon against bitterness is singing God's praises and allowing him to prune us. And so what we need to realize at this time, as we're about to enter also a time of presbytery and of praying, we need to ask God to use our spiritual weapons, our weapons of this world are not physical, they're not carnal, they're spiritual. And the way we need to realize, what we need to realize is we need to cut off the idols that we're still carrying. If you want to move with the cloud and you want to move into the next thing that God is doing, you need to burn the house down and cut off all the idols and don't allow them to come with it, but bring all the spoils you can get. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Pastor Mark, Pastor Mark, wait, wait, wait. Um, I, I saw him this morning and I was speaking to him uh, before uh, we came. And, and uh, he said something very important that I think the women need to hear. What does virtuous mean? Okay, sure. How many of you have heard of Proverbs 30, the virtuous woman? That's not what it means. The Hebrew word for virtuous there is kayil, and it means mighty warrior. Who can find a woman that is a mighty warrior? That's what God is looking for. That's what men should be looking for. A woman who is a mighty warrior. I'll just, if I can have another minute, I'll just share something real quick. When Adam was put to sleep and Eve was created, it said there was a helpmeet that was needed for him. Help me is the wrong translation. Do you know what at the Hebrew word was etzer? And the etzer in Hebrew, the first letter is the ayin, which is an I. Then comes the zayin, the weapon. The next letter, the resh, is a, a man's head. And etzer is someone who sees the enemy coming. This is why the man is focused. God told Adam to protect the garden. God created Eve to protect Adam. This is why in every Jewish wedding, the bride walks around the man seven times because she's putting a hedge of protection around him, protecting him from all others. And so, I mean, what man, if the whole concept was for protection, what man wouldn't have wanted a lion, a tiger, a bear, a tiger, you know, T-Rex to guard him. The problem was this. What good does a dinosaur do against Satan? 
We, got, we, don't, we need to know our weapon. They don't do anything against Satan. What Adam needed was a good woman to protect him, to watch his back while he's focused. And so a woman was created to guard the man. While he's doing the work, she would guard the man. The, the levels of okay. understanding. The other thing is this. All too often Christians argue over the interpretation of verse. I'm right, you're wrong. In Judaism, that never happens. There's what's called pardes, which is an acronym. The P stands for peshat. It means the plain meaning of the text. For example, don't muzzle the ox that treads the grain means don't muzzle the ox. The next level of interpretation is a remez or a hint at another meaning. And that's what the Apostle Paul did when he said, hey, help pay the preacher, you know, and he used the verse, don't muzzle the ox. That's just another level of interpretation. Then comes the D, which is drash, which means an allegory, like Hagar is Mount Sinai and Sarah, you know, uh, is Mount Zion. That's another level of interpretation. The last level basically is sowed, which means a secret or things that are hidden, like what I've been showing you, some of the things that are just hidden. They're not out in the open. But in Judaism, there are 70 levels of interpretation. And so all too often when Christians are arguing over, I'm right, you're wrong, that you say, hey, you're both right, and there could be 68 more answers. So we need to understand when you're being taught things, it's not right or wrong. It's a matter of another perspective, and there's many levels. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.